You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Jake, it was the longest Colts injury report of the season yesterday. And again, on paper, it looks really, really alarming. I, I don't find it to be as alarming as it looks. Um, I guess let's start with the good news. Julian Blackman, back to practice. He hasn't played in a few games. Naheem Hines, back to practice. Him and Tyquan Lewis, both in a red jersey yesterday as they begin their steps to the concussion protocol. If you're practicing on a Wednesday and coming back from a concussion, I would say there's a decent to good chance you play that Sunday. Well, I'll tell you, the I get it. It's a business. you got to win games. you got to put yourself in the best position. Uh, from an optics standpoint, and I'm only saying this, be, and I know, you know, I'm sure people are going to call in and say I'm soft, whatever, it's cool. Um, I'm not saying they should sit out Hines, but from an optics standpoint, only because of the si- situation that happened with uh, Tua Tungavaloa in Miami, if Hines goes, you you certainly better hope that, I mean, for his sake, obviously, more than anything, but... You know, that was a nasty concussion that happened. Now, granted, long week. Maybe that, that has something to do with it, right? He, get, he got a couple extra days since that was a short week on the Thursday game. But uh, you certainly would hope that Hines goes only after he has been 1,000% without question cleared. They had eight guys not practice. Tony Brown due to concussion. Um, Eric Johnson, defensive tackle due to illness. Ryan Kelly, hip. Shaquille Leonard with the three different injuries. Concussion, broken nose, and back. Quiddy Pay, ankle, Jonathan Taylor, ankle. Two of the eight who did not practice are rest. That would be Yanni Kangakwe and Stefan Gilmore. So I think when you start looking at this closer, two of the eight are rest, so those guys are good. And in Kelly, Taylor, and Tony Brown's case, those three were all working off to the side with members of the athletic training staff doing some jogging some aerobic activity again when those guys do that on Wednesdays that's typically a decent sign I would say as of right now Jake on Thursday morning Quiddy Pay, who doesn't have a boot on that injured ankle but Frank Reich said he's going to be evaluated week to week I would say he does not play Sunday and then again I would think Shaquille Leonard does not play because multiple injuries coming back from a concussion, and he was not out there yesterday. Has every local team that people follow had a Tony Brown at some point, by the way? <laughs> like, I know Indiana had – IU had a Tony Brown. The Pacers yeah. had a Tony Brown. Not the same Tony Brown as the – Sounds like a Notre IU. Dame wide out back in the day. It, or like a DB from, from Notre Dame. Um, in, in terms of the, the things that you just mentioned, the position where the Colts, Kevin, have the most – depth or room for error when it comes or in other words are there any and I get that injuries you always take with extreme caution but is there a position in your opinion is there a player that if they need extra time to make sure they are 100% mended the the depth that their position affords them that time and is there anybody that you look at and go you know they might need that guy at 80% because there's nothing else behind him. So you're saying positions that don't have a lot of depth. Correct. A, a position gotcha. where you look at it on the on the injury chart and you're like, I, look, if that guy's a 70% go, he's got to go. Like, like Julian Blackman, 
if, if he's at 80% and they feel like he needs one more week, it almost feels like they can kind of get away with that. Well, how about linebacker? Whereas, Shaquille Leonard right now. Zaire Franklin and Bobby Okereke have really stepped up. Okay, now. And we asked that question earlier in the week. When Shaq gets back, I don't think you just insert him and play him every single snap. He's got to prove that he is 100% because I think Franklin and Bobby Okereke have given you pretty good snaps. I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning of the year and got probably rightly, understandably, a lot of heat for when I said that I wasn't I wasn't saying it definitively, but I was starting to wonder or question whether or not Shaquille Leonard was slightly overrated. And I know that his turnover forcing is and his energy are when he is healthy are unparalleled in the league, almost unprecedented in the league. I get it. But the only reason I said it and the reason I had him, I think, like four on our list of I can't remember where I had him, but, you know, most indispensable players. Maybe I had him one. Hell, I don't know. But. It did. I, I did wonder whether or not those other guys by committee couldn't pick up a lot of what he does. The only thing that they haven't been able to replicate is the turnovers, right? right? Which has been a big deal. It has. I mean, they are near the bottom in turnovers. I would say, to your point, Jake, offensive line. It, I mean, almost assuredly, right? We talked about it a little bit in the opening segment. They're going to stick with Bernard Ryman at left tackle. Um, and as we, I think, talked about earlier in the week, I understand that. When you draft him and he has as little of experience as he had, not only you know growing up in Pop Warner and high school football, um, but collegiately he began as a tight end then grew into a tackle, you were going to have to be patient and you're going to have to live with some of the baptism by fire in games. And I think you saw some of that last Thursday, but you know talking to Ryman yesterday, and I would agree with them, he felt like he played better in the second half. So Ryman will get the start again at left tackle. I think you got to help him out a little bit more than you did. Again, Quentin Nelson at left guard. If healthy, it's going to be Ryan Kelly at center. Jake, Frank Reich said yesterday that the thought of moving Braden Smith from right tackle to right guard was for two reasons. First, it had nothing to do with Braden Smith's play at right tackle. The Colts feel like their inside run game has been very poor this season. And the center of the pocket has not been as firm and as solid as they would like it. And I understand the thought process in wanting to improve those areas. I still think that when you lose Braden Smith at right tackle, it is such a drastic loss, and we saw it. Matt Pryor gave up the most pressures the NFL has seen this season at right tackle. I still think you could firm it up with maybe a a Pryor at right guard, maybe a Will Fries, something like that. But that was the reasoning for moving Braden Smith inside. And I'm curious if any of that comes from Matt Ryan or Jonathan Taylor expressing some things. Interesting. I mean, you know full well what Peyton Manning thought about the interior of a of a pocket. He'd right. rather have that be firm than the edges. If you're Matt Ryan, you operate in kind of a similar manner with your athleticism and ability to get out of the pocket. I- I, I understand where they're coming from. If you're Jonathan Taylor, though, are you not thinking about the fact that, hey, listen, I, in addition to that, you know, in, in one of the bigger plays of the year when I had, well, not bigger plays of the year, but, I, you know, a critical situation, and I we had to go one yard on a fourth down, and I went left side interior line and got stuffed. What are we doing here? I mean, it's not just the right side, right? I mean, I know that Quentin Nelson is everybody's favorite guy and run the damn ball and pancakes and whatever else, but uh, 
20 million, man. Yeah, but you're not moving Nelson. No, I, I get it. Yeah, it, I get it, it, but that's not to say that the play's been perfect. It's not, no, it, it's not just one area to your point, but I go back to that. Gosh, was it Kansas City game or Tennessee game when Taylor had to leap like two yards short of the line well, of scrimmage? A, you know, th- that play. Right, that's what I mean. I mean, that's he, like the interior breaking down. Right. Um, I would still keep Braden Smith a right tackle. To me, that just means too much. We've seen sacks and fumbles from that side. I get that Braden Smith has not lived up to the right tackle contract, but we saw last Thursday night. Last Thursday night, you didn't have two tackles, let alone one tackle. At least with Braden Smith, you got one. You know, I'm going to speak real quick, and I know we're up against it here, but to to people that are not, and I, this is very elementary, and I apologize to probably 95% of our audience. But for those that are unfamiliar, you have the center who snaps the ball, obviously. But the guards are the first guys next to the center. Tackles are the ones on the the outside. They're the they're the the edge guys, if you will. And I know that, and I've asked this myself to Anthony Costanzo before. I think I've asked it to Saturday. I've asked it to Ryan Deem. Is there that big a difference between the way you play? Because theoretically, Kevin, you think to yourself, as people are listening to this, and uh, you know, Steve the architect that's driving into work, or you know, Sally the lawyer that's driving into work that are listening to this, are like, well, what's the difference? There is a definitive difference in movement of the way that you move your feet and the way that you contort your body towards protecting the edge versus the inside of the line. It is a very different discipline in the way that you guard. And so, therefore, moving someone from one to the next, it's not like when you were in middle school and they snap the ball and you just go straight forward to the guy next to you. There is movement of being aware of what's happening on your right or left side if you're on the end or in the middle, etc. I mean, there is a definitive discipline difference between positions. Yeah, I would add movement and space. And Joe Wrights will have him on tomorrow. He'll be the perfect guy to throw that to. But yeah, you have a lot more space you're responsible for when you are the guy on the edge. Matt Pryor's talked about how much space he's in charge of, or like you said, Jake, right. how much space he has around him at left tackle versus when he's been a guard. The movement area is a lot more confined in the interior of the O-line. We'll continue the Colts conversation coming up. From the reverse side of it this Sunday, that would be the Jacksonville Jaguars coming in here at two and they're two and three, right? Correct. Two and three coming on the off season. a bad loss, man. Coming off a bad loss to the Houston Texans, they are a one point underdog, one and a half point underdog on Sunday. Eight o'clock hours underway. One house cleaning note, real quick. Mentioned it earlier. Going to mention it again. If you are heading in towards downtown or anticipating going south, just south of it, I-65 southbound. There's a crash at Central Avenue. Well, uh, I-65 southbound basically towards just by the north split. I-65 south, there's a crash, and it basically is closed. So if you usually use 65 to get into downtown, go ahead and hop off if you're in the car and you're listening. Uh, Detour at 30th or 21st Street. One house cleaning note. Uh, Joining us now on the Payless Liquors guest line, a return guest to the program. We talk to him each time the Colts and Jags getting ready to tussle. He is the Jaguars reporter for ESPN.com. Mike DeRocco joins us. And Mike, I'll tell you what, the Jags are fascinating because depending on which game you'd be coming off of, we could be talking about the fact that perhaps they've arrived or we could be talking about the fact that they're young and still figuring themselves out. I think probably safe to say disappointing coming off of Houston. But the the question is this. 
What team is going to arrive here at Lucas Oil Stadium? Will the real Jags please stand up? That will be who? Yeah, see, that's the thing. Um, I think the real Jags are the last, are, are the young team trying to figure things out. And when you have that young team trying to figure stuff out, you get a team that can go into uh, Los Angeles and beat the Chargers by 28 points and then lose at home to the Houston Texans. So um, I don't know whether you're going to get the team that showed up in L.A. Um, my guess is that um, you know they feel pretty good about themselves this week because of the way they played against the Colts before. Uh, they do know that obviously things are going to be a little bit different. They're probably not going to get some of the same looks on defense, and and you know the, the Colts should have some more players available this week than they did, uh, uh, you know that first game. Although still unsure about the status of of uh, Jonathan Taylor. So it's hard. I don't even think the coaching staff knows what they're going to get this week. And and especially, I don't know that they know what they're going to get out of Trevor Lawrence because in the two wins that they have had, he played fantastic. And in the three losses, he has not been very good, and especially last week and against Philadelphia. Mike, let's focus there on Trevor Lawrence. Again, Mike DiRocco from ESPN.com is with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. I'm probably simplifying this too much, Mike. But it just has the feel that Trevor Lawrence is not very good against 98% of the NFL, and he's really good against the Colts. <laughs> That's what it looks like, doesn't it? I mean, holy cow, two of his best games have been against the Colts. Um, yeah, he's still trying to figure stuff out. And it, people down here are getting impatient um, with him, and they feel like, you know, look, this is a supposed generational player, generational talent, and it's year two, and he's still having boneheaded plays like he did last week when he threw the end zone interception from inside the five-yard line. But, um, you know, Doug Peterson is certainly um, not impatient. He's not giving up on Trevor Lawrence. He said that, obviously, earlier in the week. And he said, look, guys, we need to have patience. Every, things, Everyone wants everything immediately, and that's just – not going to happen. If you look at Trevor Lawrence, three offensive coordinators, three head coaches in three years. And, you know, Peterson pointed back earlier in his uh, tenure here, pointed back to Carson Wentz and said, hey, look, you know, Wentz really kind of took off in that second year in in the system here. So let's get Trevor Lawrence kind of settled into this system. He's still learning it, still trying to figure all this stuff out. And then let's see what happens in year two. He should be better in year two. Now, you know, that, that's that's great and fantastic, but people in Jacksonville have been sitting around here waiting for a quarterback forever, and there's just not a lot of patience here. But, you know, he when he's played the Colts and he's played, the, you know, um, pretty well, it's because he's not forced things downfield. He's played within the offense. Um, he's learned that lesson, or, he, or he's, he's, you know, followed the philosophy of just because I can make the throw doesn't mean I should make the throw. Uh, and stop trying to force balls downfield. You know, sometimes the defenses that, that you'll play, like last week, the Lovey Smith and, and what the the, Jay, uh, the the Colts do with Gus Bradley, you, you know, it makes the quarterback be patient and make him take some of the shorter throws and, and, and take the check downs. And, and when he's done that, he's been good. And when he hasn't, he hasn't. So you got to hope if you're the Jags and he remembers what it was like the last two times he played the Colts and, and goes ahead and, and does that again. It's interesting to me, Mike, because, uh, you know, I, I mention this probably every time we talk, but I, I watched Trevor Lawrence a lot in college. Every snap he took, as a matter of fact, as a Clemson fan. And Travis Etienne was a safety net for him at Clemson. He had a lot of weapons around him, obviously. Um, and Etienne seemingly was going to be kind of a comfort blanket for him in Jacksonville during his infancy as a quarterback. 
We know that ETN got hurt last year. Still hasn't really taken off for ETN, but it looks like Jacksonville is starting to figure out how to use him and kind of use a combo in their backfield. Uh, is that a safe statement about ETN and the way he's starting to be incorporated? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at Doug Peterson's history um, with running backs, he's only had uh, – that's kind of the way he's always used them. He, he's not had a guy that's dominated all of the carries – uh, when he was at Philadelphia, he always had sort of a committee approach. Uh, I don't think he had anyone rush for more than 900 yards um, in his career as the head coach in Philadelphia. So, you know, they're going to they're gonna share some things. Now, last week, ETN actually had a few more snaps uh, than James Robinson. Um, so they're, they're mixing these guys in and kind of, you know, they want to go with a hot hand, Doug Peterson says. But last week, Travis Etienne averaged seven yards a carry, and he hardly got any touches in the second half. Um, you know, and, and Doug Peterson is not a guy who likes to run the ball a ton. He wants to throw it around. So we'll see how it works. You know, I, I, I think that there's going to be weeks where James Robinson is the, the bulk of the work, and there's going to be weeks where Etienne is going to be the bulk of the work. And uh, this looks like a game, I think, that it might be James Robinson. Um you know, I think they want to try and run the ball again, kind of take some pressure off Trevor Lawrence. And if there are some throws, there will be some quicker, shorter throws. And, and that may favor ETN for sure. But I do think this is going to be a bigger workload for James Robinson this week. Mike DiRocco is with us here. Again, he covers the Jags for ESPN.com. And uh, he's with us on Kevin and Query. Mike, uh, the Colts are in a seven-game stretch of scoring 20 points or less in that stretch they've played some pretty bad defenses to be honest with you I look at Jacksonville though and I'm like man across the board they they look like a pretty sound like top 10 defense is that too premature to crown them that this at this point in the season uh no I mean I I I would say that they're I don't know that I would essentially call them a top 10 I think they're pretty darn good and they're much better than they were and until last week, they had certainly been thriving on forcing turnovers, which was something that they hadn't done um, last year. They had only nine of la- all of last year, and they're already past that mark now, or they're at that mark now. Um, and we're, what, six games or going into the sixth week. Uh, they're getting more pressure on the quarterback than they did last year, and their linebackers are much better, can really run in the middle with Devin Lloyd, the, the, the rookie, and Foye Luikan, the, the guy they signed uh, in free agency from the Falcons. So they're, they're a much, much better unit. You know, there are still some questions in the secondary. Um, but, you know, th- turning the ball over can kind of mask a lot of issues. And they've been ahead in some games, too. They were ahead, obviously, in the Colts game. They were ahead in the Chargers game big. So when you're able to do that, you're able to – pin back ears and go rush and that rush and cover stuff comes in into play and then there you got another turnover and stuff so um they were pretty good against the run until the eagles put 210 on them uh but that was foyer or excuse me Foley fatakasi and the nose tackle was out and i think he's going to play this week so we'll see if that you know helps that run defense but they are much much better off a defense than they have been and if you look the games they lost they were in them until the end so i guess if you're looking for um, you know, a silver lining if you're a Jags fan. It's like the defense has kept them from getting blown out, which wasn't the case in the last several years. When I look back on that shutout loss in Week 2 for the Colts, the fact that Michael Pittman and Alec Pierce weren't on the field for that matchup, I think it's just huge. I felt like Jacksonville didn't respect Indianapolis at all on the perimeter, and rightfully so. Um, they stuffed Jonathan Taylor, and then obviously when, it, when the Colts got behind the chains, they just feasted in getting after Matt Ryan. 
personnel-wise, Pittman and Pierce back for this one. Uh, what, if anything, has changed for Jacksonville since these two teams met about a month ago? Um, you know, they should be back to – I mean, they should be at full strength. So personnel-wise, they're going to be – it'll be the same group of guys. Now, um, you know, there's some nicks and, and, you know, bruises and stuff everybody's dealing with at this point. But, you know, that was a huge, huge factor in that first game. I mean, it, that, that Colts offense didn't – I mean, it had nothing to scare you in the pass game, not a thing. And they were able to really kind of tee off on, on Matt Ryan and – you know, when you get a quarterback that's not real mobile and you get that push up the middle, it, it, it can be an ugly day, and, and that's what we saw. And I think Foley, uh, you know, Fadakasi is, is mainly, a, you know, he's a was signed to be a run stuffer, but he's been pretty solid in terms of, you know, getting interior pressure when he's been on the field in those passing downs. So, you know, I think that that's what they're going to still try and do is get more pressure up the middle, uh, send some guys through those A-gaps on blitzes and try and get Matt Ryan to move. But – you know, having those two guys makes that offense a little bit more complete. Uh, and and this will be interesting to see if the Jags are able to handle those two guys on the edge. Mike DeRocco is our guest. Payless Liquor's guest line is where he is currently. He is the writer for ESPN.com. He's in Jacksonville, actually. His voice is on the Payless Liquor's guest line. <laughs> um, Mike, here's the deal. Jacksonville has had success, obviously, against the Colts. As we have talked about over the course of this interview, Doug Peterson is a guy that is still kind of trying to put his thumbprint on what Jacksonville does. Are there tweaks that we will see out of the Jags that are fam- that are unfamiliar to Indianapolis on Sunday? Or is there enough body of work for the Jags to say, you know what, this is the one franchise that what we have done against them is going to work, so let's just stick right with the same game plan? Um, I, I think... M- not necessarily completely the same game plan, but I think they're going to try, obviously, and do some of the same things they did because they know with the Gus Bradley defense, you kind of get what you get. They don't do a lot of exotic things. Um, you know, they try and get the pressure with four. Um, you know, that was the defense Bradley ran when he was down here in Jacksonville for those, uh, what, six seasons, five seasons. So, I mean, Jags fans are intimately familiar with that. And, you know, if, if, if they can get the pressure with four, then things can be really good for them. If they don't, then it could be a long day. Uh, the one thing I think the Jags are going to try and do again will be get Christian Kirk matched up in the middle of the field with a linebacker, um, and, and that's something Christian Kirk's going to win nine times out of ten. So I think that they'll try that early again to see if they can have some success with that. Um, but I think for the most part, I don't, you know, I don't expect to see anything exotic out of the Jags. Um, you know, they just really, like I said, want to get the ball out of Trevor Lawrence's hands pretty quickly. And, you know, they'll have some stuff that, that he's able to do that. Maybe a few more swing passes, uh, you know, some screens, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I don't think they expect anything crazy out of the, the Colts defense either. Yeah, those perfect opening drives for Lawrence last year, week 18, earlier this year, week two, absolutely maddening for the Colts. I think that, frankly, has set the tone for Lawrence's big days in each of those matchups. Mike, last one for me, and I'll save the hardest till the end. Um, Boy, uh, it's not a ringing endorsement of maybe one of these divisional teams making a run in January, but if you had to pick an AFC South favorite on October 13th, who would be the winner of the loser division? (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Uh, You know what? Nobody over the last three or four years responds better after getting punched in the mouth in the Tennessee Titans and look where they are now after getting punched in the mouth early in the season. So um, I like Mike Vrabel. I think his teams are tough. I think his teams are, um, you know, 
resilient. So I, I'm going to go with the Titans. Um, you know, it's hard not to, you know, they've got some ten, uh, playoff experience. You know, I'm not a big Ryan Tannehill guy, but I mean, you know, he's led this team to the playoffs, led them to the number one seed in the AFC last year. So um, I think I'm going to go with Rabel and the Titans. Okay, my last question for you is this, Mike. What is the perception of Indianapolis, the Colts, I mean? I mean, you are a Jaguars rider. That means you've got to keep, you know, kind of an eye on what the Colts are doing as well as the other teams in the AFC South. We have our opinions or observations in Indianapolis, but the outside market thought on the Colts is what? They're not as close as they think they are. Um, you know, the, the, the reason you're going and getting a Phillip Rivers at the end of his career and a Carson Wentz and a Matt Ryan at the end of his career is because you feel like you're that quarterback away and the veteran quarterback is going to get you there. Um, and that's just not been the case, as we've seen. And, and you know, there are other issues. Um, you know, who's the game-breaking playmaker other than Jonathan Taylor? Um, you know, is it Pittman? I don't know. Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, maybe he becomes that eventually. But I think that's the perception, at least here in Jacksonville, um, that, you know, maybe the Colts um, have a higher – or maybe the Colts management has a higher opinion of where they are in terms of being, you know, elite in a team that can compete for a Super Bowl than what they actually are. Mike DiRocco, again, ESPN.com. He joins us every time the Colts and Jags meet up. It's been 10 straight wins by the home team in this matchup. Mike, safe travels up here, and we'll see you in the press box on Sunday. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. Jake, I don't know if you saw last night. Um, Scott Agnes did not source me on this, but that's fine. Uh, phase four of the Pacers' GameBridge renovations will be the Benedict Matherin statue. That's right. That they're going to add that. That's right. To, that's supposed to be done by Saturday. Yeah, done by Saturday. Going to be crystal clear for the All Star Game coming up in a year. But they just finalized those plans last night. And Scott Agnes is on the Payless Liquors hotline to chat about. The game last night, Scott. Obviously, um, my love for Benedict Matherin is well documented. I, I feel like what you heard post game is part of why I just think there's so much potential there. Like, I just think this dude is wired the right way. His talent on the floor, I think, is rather obvious. But I love, love how he ticks. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Last night was fun, uh, considering just being a preseason game. Um, good to be back at the field house and everything, but with, with Matherin, yeah. And we, we've seen this, I feel like since the draft, um, just in how he operates, how he goes about things, how he just has complete belief in himself, but it's not like overbearing or, um, right. it's not a cocky arrogance. It's just being completely and entirely confident in oneself, which I think we all strive to be right. And then, then even better when he gets out on the floor, you know, he's doing everything he asks. He's making some mistakes. He's leaning on the coaches. There's a lot to like. I think part of it, too, just comes from his background. I mean, you know, unfortunately, his father was really never in his life. His older brother, his best friend, I think maybe older brother, I don't know, maybe it was his twin. I'd have to double-check that. You know, died tragically in a bike accident. He's got to go to Mexico at a young age. I mean, you go to a foreign country at the age of 15 or 16, you're all you've got. And I, I feel like that background, as tragic as it is, has helped shape him, certainly, into the type of individual that we see right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. I can't imagine picking up and leaving and going down to Mexico and trying to 
figure that all out by yourself and learn a foreign language. Now he knows four and is working on another one. Um, just an incredibly sharp and determined um, human. And the biggest thing, and I tweeted this last night, he's like the definition of competitor. And it's about everything. It's not just basketball. It's, it could be, um, you know, whether it's in personal life or it's a little side drill after practice not just games like this guy is just intense and wants to win and compete. And that's a trait that the Pacers really were after this offseason. You know, it is not unprecedented in this market with this franchise, Scott Agnes talking about the Pacers to have two stars that kind of arrive simultaneously and then having to decide which one you roll with Uh, Chuck person, Reggie Miller comes to mind, you know, both of them kind of came into their own around the same time. Miller just slightly behind my point being, with Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin, uh, good problem to have, don't get me wrong, and way early perhaps to say definitively it will take place. But is this a franchise that may have to ultimately decide which one is Batman, which one's Robin, and what they do with it? I don't think so in this case, only because from what I see is I don't see Tyrese ever being that number one guy, the go-to guy, the you know, that type of thing. Like, late-game situation, you knew Reggie was going to get it. Now, Tyrese might take it. He might want it. I actually probably want it in his hands, but he doesn't necessarily need to take the shot. The best scenario might be him passing it off to Matherin, to Buddy Heal, to someone like that. Um, I see Tyrese almost more pass-first than he needs to be. Um, that was one of my biggest criticism last year. However, with the recognition that he was new to this situation and just trying to, he was living out of a hotel and trying to figure it out as he could. Um, but I, I see Halliburton ultimately in a best case scenario is being like your third best player, maybe your second best player, but doing all the little stuff, being the leader, being the floor general, being that coach on the floor. It doesn't necessarily have to be the best player. Scott Agnes from Field Ass Files. He's with us here on the Payless Liggers Hotline. Kind of on that Halliburton note, we saw yesterday the Pacers pick up uh, fourth-year options for Halliburton and Aaron Neesmith. So that would be for next season. Um, Isaiah Jackson and Chris Duarte, those third-year options also for next season. I assume all that was pretty transactional, Scott. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Halliburton can sign a pretty big extension next offseason. They don't have to, but that would makes sense for the Pacers trying to keep him long-term. Yeah, in terms of the rookie scale options, that's just a matter of formality. You you start doing that um, after that first year, and you have until the end of October. So they did it a couple weeks earlier than they technically had to do so, but um, this franchise, in almost every case, um, does it before the regular season. Puts that out of sight, out of mind. Let's just move on. And most of the time, it's pretty obvious, right? The one, the one that gets attention was uh, when they declined right Solomon Hill. He didn't really play that the season until like the last month. Played great, went to the Toronto series, played well, hit some threes, and then uh, uh, then he was able to, I think, uh, go sign what was it, New Orleans maybe, and, and get a a really strong contract. Um, and then in terms of Tyrese, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and generally, this team wants to sign these the players coming off a rookie scale option especially those featured first round picks they did it with miles uh and that that went down the wire like the final 30 minutes um in october of that year it's actually today i believe this is yeah on my calendar 
I have, I have it from uh, whatever it was three years ago. And then same thing with Doma. So they'll absolutely want to do that. And then it just is up to whether them, them and Tyrese can get on the same page before the season or if it's something that has to wait. But I think it would probably get done. Scott, I don't know the answer to this, which is why I'm going to ask. I, I don't know um, even how much it's been discussed internally, but – with the retool, we're going to call it that. It's a rebuild. With the rebuild of the Pacers and with Rick Carlisle being a veteran coach, do you believe that Rick Carlisle was the last one that had to be sold on this guy? And that's not a knock on him at all. I'm just saying, like, do you think that when Rick Carlisle was hired in Indiana that he knew this ultimately was what he was going – the task that he was going to be undertaking along with Kevin Pritchard, or do you think they had to sell him on it? I think the last person – was Herb Simon that they had to sell on this idea of, hey, we need to hit the lottery again and let's go for one more rebuild type year. Um, in terms of Rick, yeah, I, I don't, he had, from, from our, all our conversations, he had no intentions of a rebuild. He thought he was picking it up where it was and trying to shape it. And with his expertise, his experience, a little bit of coaching, hopefully some good health, that they could be that four, five, six team in the Eastern Conference once again and, you know, win a playoff series for the first time in three or four years. He was hoping for that. And so I think it was somewhat of a reality check after really going into training camp or that first month. I mean, if you remember, even before camp, Edmund Sumner out for the season with an injury. Before the year, uh, again, T.J. Warren, uh, it's going to be a matter of weeks, not months. He never did play. Well, there's two guys in your rotation that never did play that season on top of other guys with, with injuries and, and then all the different stuff. So I, I think it took several months as well. But Rick then, he, he's, he loves teaching, master of instruction. And so I think once he could turn and, and hit that reality that this is going nowhere, I think then his opinion shifted to like, okay, I'm going to do a lot of teaching and this could be a lot of fun. Scott, I've got a couple, and Scott Agnes from Fieldhouse Files, he's with us here on Kevin and Corey. Got a couple of rotation questions. Um, I think for reasons you would want to play TJ McConnell Andrew, and Andrew Nemhard, not necessarily together, but McConnell just, he gets everybody involved. I think he'll really help you evaluate your roster. Um, and Nemhard, of course, you want to give minutes to because he's a rookie and you feel like he's probably the backup point guard of the future. How do you think they divvy up those minutes? Um, I guess I'll start there and then I'll ask the other one. Yeah, I think for one, in an ideal world, nobody's playing 35, 39, 41 minutes this year in general, right? There's going to be some uh, one-off scenarios in overtime game. But I think in general, one, everybody's minutes come down a little bit. Rick's already said that he wants to play at least a 10-man rotation. Most most teams will play nine, sometimes eight. Uh, obviously, it gets shorter once it comes to postseason um with, with mcconnell you got to give him i think at least 20 25 minutes per game and then yeah and then nimhard needs some time as well the thing i've learned here uh just over time is it, it'll figure itself out sometimes in ways you don't want right like injuries last year where it's Kiefer sykes then it's or it's brad wanamaker then it's lance just because nobody's healthy so I think they'll figure out a way to make it work because Nemhard's so good. He was the number one guy that everybody was highlighting uh, during training camp. And I thought last night, yes, Matherin was terrific, 
but finally we were able to see Nemhard, and it was was as good as advertised, I thought, and how he confidently went into his shot, which we've seen, you know, from his playing days. But also, I love the nine assists and how he tried to take command of the floor in his first time playing in the field house. And, and still, I was asking him post game about like learning to see his teammates' tendencies. Like as a point guard, that's absolutely huge, knowing what they like and also knowing where they're going to be. He was like, yeah, I'm not even sure how long that's going to take. We'll see. Yeah, I would agree. It was it was the shots. He looked confident, not afraid of those moments there late in the game. Um, and then the other name, they flashed to the bench obviously a lot last night, and you see Daniel Tice. And I'm reminded when I see Daniel Tice, who they got in that Boston trade, that dude yeah. has started over 20 playoff games in his career. Um would he be the backup center or is that Isaiah Jackson's minutes? Like, how do you see Daniel Tice being used? That's Isaiah Jackson's minutes. Um, yes. Yeah, I don't know if awkward's the right word, but it's just, they're, they're in two separate worlds. Meaning sure. Pacer is trying to rebuild, get other guys minutes. Tice just got his big contract a year ago. He's under contract for a couple more years. Wants to be on the playoff team was incredibly disappointed to be stunned and be dealt by the Boston Celtics. He was not expecting that and then had to pick up and come here to Indianapolis and, and try to figure it out. No, oh, by the way, there's a log jam at center. Um, so I don't expect him to finish the season here. I fully expect the Pacers and him to try to find a trade that makes sense. It's the trouble is Kevin is there's just not many trades that go down at this time of year. Um, usually you have to get till late December, January, Team has injuries, team has depth issues, a guy doesn't pan out. Um, but I, I think you could probably expect for him to get dealt once a team is actually in the market for, for a player like him. Uh, let me ask you real quick, Scott. Scott Agnes, our guest, Fieldhouse Files, where you can read his work. He's on the Payless Liquors guest line. Uh, a couple of names of Pacers past that I, I want to touch on real quick, okay? Just because I think there are people that probably wonder what became of these guys. You know where this is going, I'm sure. Lance Stevenson, still a free agent, correct? Correct. Okay. TJ Warren signed with Brooklyn back in July. Do we? Not that it matters now, but he was a nice guy. You know, look, there's no reason to dislike TJ Warren. I thought he exceeded expectation in Indiana. Good, solid player. Uh, now with the Nets, I have no idea. Is he going to be able to play, or do we know where things stand there? He's not available, has not played in the preseason. They said they're going to take it slow, and I, I think you probably won't see him for another month or so. Man, so gosh. it's to be determined there, unfortunately. Yeah, nice player too, but it I was – I hate to see that. I know. but um, Scott, last one from me. Um, any positives, negatives? It seemed mostly positive on my end um, from people in Valley Sports. Uh, Streaming-wise, Valley Sports Plus, what was the feedback you heard from people last night? I'll tell you what, I didn't get any feedback. So it's either uh, worked flawlessly and was really good or it's preseason and nobody used their seven-day free trial uh, or sign up to catch the preseason game. But I, I did not hear any feedback either way. No news is good news, I would think, on that front, there right? If people had issues with it. I, you know, I have cable. I didn't have any issues with it. Um, I think one person tweeted at me a little bit of a glitch. But sometimes I've noticed that with Amazon Prime that can be kind of on the user end with um with that uh scott thank you very much and enjoying these conversations every thursday here with the pacer season uh starting officially next week absolutely thank you 
Kevin, I have right here in the palm of my hand the starting offensive line of the 1934 Fighting Motman Doctor uh, Detroit Lions. You ready? <laughs> the 1934 Lions offensive line. We're going offensive line, right? Uh, we've got Ray Richards, a 6'1", 230-pound tackle out of Nebraska. The center, Claire Randolph, 6'2", 204, out of Indiana. Mm. Good polling guard at 204. Fighting Hoosiers, that's right. Mm-hmm. Part-time milkman, part-time guard. <laughs> Russ Lay. As we said, IU produces a lot of offensive linemen. Russ there. Lay, like Motman out of Michigan State, 5'11", 198, the guard. <laughs> also at guard, Sam Knox, six foot two thirteen, out of New Hampshire. Might be skinny as a twig, but he's strong as an ox. <laughs> Jack Johnson, the 6'4", tackle out of Utah. Tom Hupke. That's the big hog molly, Jack now, Johnson. Is he a singer, Jack Johnson? He is. Tom Hupke out of Alabama. See, I mean, this is probably their guy, right? He was a guard. 5'10", 192. <laughs> the Quint Nelson of the 1934 Lions. Uh, I'm sorry, that must be point guard. Uh, and finally, at guard, giving depth at the position, Maury, uh, Maury Bodinger, 5'10", 214 out of Tulane. Povich? Was Povich named after? <laughs> That's right. You are not... The center. Uh, Chuck Bernard, also a center, 6'3", 225 out of Michigan. For those wondering why the hell we're talking the 1934 Lions offensive line, uh, the Colts have not allowed a single point in the fourth quarter of the season. If they stretch that to six games on Sunday, that would be the first team to accomplish that feat since the 34 Lions and the 34 Bears. I and don't I was simply overlook. saying, can we at least get some of their offensive linemen? I don't want to overlook Mark's 34 Bears. Zach Kiefer is going to join us here in a few minutes. We talked a little bit about the Colts injury report yesterday. When you look at it, especially compared to Jacksonville's, I don't think Jacksonville had a single guy mispractice yesterday. It's very long. Uh, eight Colts did not practice, and I don't think that includes Philip Lindsay, who is on the practice squad, so he does not appear on the official injury report. I did not spot him yesterday out there. But I think when you look closer at that list, really Quiddy Pay with his ankle injury, and then Shaquille Leonard with the back concussion and broken nose. Those are the two that I would put in the very iffy for Sunday category. Stephon Gilmore was rest. Yannick Ngakwe was rest. Jonathan Taylor and Ryan Kelly were both. Mark, I think you're on the air. Were both off to the side um, working with the athletic training staff. So. The Thursday injury report usually gives you a little better indicator. If Taylor and or Kelly can get back to practice, you know, Quiddy and Shaq, I would keep in that category of those are the two that I don't think will give it a go. But all in all, I don't think it's as bad as it looks. You know, Hines is the one that would be. He practiced yesterday, red non-contact jersey. I, I, I get it. I just. That one to me seems peculiar. I. That was a hard hit, man. I, you know, and he was. I think the extra time off probably helps in that case. You know, the fact that you played on Thursday. And for what it's worth, you know, Frank Reich said at halftime that Naheem Hines literally came up to him and was like, hey, I want to go back in the game. And I get a lot of people would just simply point to that's macho football. You're right. Persona with that. Um, and we can ask Zach. I don't know if Zach saw Naheem Hines in the locker room afterwards, but. I think guys that were in Denver for that game said Hines was his usual self after the game. So, But, again, this is a reminder, Jake, of how all concussions are unique. You know? 
Naeem Hines looks like he's not going to miss a game. Shaquille Leonard's going to miss at least a game, if not longer. Yeah, I just I, – I would be – I don't know. I would err on the side of caution, especially coming off of the the situation with Tua in Miami when it comes to concussions. But uh, Zach Kiefer joins us now. Of course, you can read Zach's work at The Athletic, one of the premier writers covering the Colts throughout the course of the season, joins us on the Payless Liggers guest line. And, uh, Zach, I guess we'll start actually with that since Kevin and I were just talking about it. Um, do you anticipate that we'll see a lot of reps from Naeem Hines coming up on Sunday? That's a good question. We always saw what happened in Denver. We saw the shakiness and him sort of wobbling off the field. Um, he was in a red jersey yesterday. That means non-contact. That means he's making progress. I think it's a possibility that he plays Sunday. Jonathan Taylor's status is still up in doubt as well. Um, but they kind of proved that you know Philip Lindsay and Deion Jackson could kind of get the job done if not. But I know Naheem really wants to get back out there. And Zach Keever from The Athletic is with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Zach, we know Bernard Ryman at left tackle. We know Quint Nelson at left guard. If Ryan Kelly's healthy, he will be the starting center. Uh, do you think they're going to run it back all the way with the same offensive line we saw on Thursday night? That would be Matt Pryor at right tackle and Braden Smith moving to the position he played in college at right guard. Is that where you stand on this Thursday morning? No, it's not. I mean, do you guys think they can play Matt Pryor right now anywhere? I guess there's two questions. Do you think they will run it back? Do you think they should run it back? Well, I've made my stance clear. I do not think they should run it back. (laughs) I I mean, I I watched the tape, and I don't think they can play Matt Pryor right now. Certainly not one of the tackle positions. I just don't think they can do that. He's the worst player on the field in Denver, and that's saying something because there was a lot of bad football out there. He's he's costing them, and and they're playing with fire. The same way they played with fire – five or six years ago when they didn't protect their quarterback. And Matt Ryan is just not going to pop up from one of these hits if he keeps getting abused this way in the pocket. 47 hits, for goodness sakes, in five weeks. So they can't play Matt Pryor. That's my stance. I, I don't know what they're doing with Dennis Kelly. I just don't understand this. I did talk to Dennis yesterday, and for those who were a little curious, you know, when they signed Ty Niseki on Tuesday, I, I tweeted, why won't they play Dennis Kelly? He's been healthy for a month. And Dennis Kelly replied to the tweet with a gif that said, I don't know. So I asked him about it. And he basically admitted there's some frustration. He's been healthy since week two. Um, he was brought to be the backup swing tackle, but clearly they don't, have, they don't have good tackles right now. So they need an answer. He was really brought here to be an answer, whether it's short-term or long-term. So I don't understand why he's not out there. He can play right tackle. That's the majority of his career where he spent it. He's played good line in Tennessee. I, I just don't get it. So if if he's ready to go, I'm playing him at right tackle, and I'm playing Braden Smith at right guard, and I'm praying to the football gods that we can protect Matt Ryan a little bit and this team can, can you know, because, you know, Alec Pierce and, and Michael Pittman and if Jonathan Taylor comes back, none of that matters until this team starts to block. Zach, I have a, a real weakness in – Two things. I mean, I have a lot of weaknesses, but two of them that are weaknesses of mine. One is that sometimes when I when I see something, I can't grasp why everybody doesn't see it as plainly as I do. And then the other is that then I dwell on things too long. So my question for you is this. To me, it is very apparent 
that the areas and the issues that we're talking about through five weeks that are plaguing the Indianapolis Colts and holding them back are the exact same issues that we were talking about in July and in June and in May. And so then I wonder to myself, if I can see this, I'm not trying to bag on the general manager who knows more about football than I do, admittedly, but why why is there not, like, scrutiny? Why is there not – and I don't mean by the media. I just mean – and maybe there is internally. Like, why is that seat not warming up when we're sitting here going over the exact same crap for like six straight months and no one seems to be bothered by the fact that it was apparent to everybody in town but people at 56th Street? Oh, I don't agree with you. I, I do think the seat is warming. I, I okay, do you? Say it publicly or not. I do, absolutely. I don't think the owner's happy. And I'm not just saying that because I think that. I mean, that's the, you know, that's sort of what I've heard. The owner is not happy right now. I mean, did did you watch the game, Jake, in Thursday night in Denver? Did you would you be happy if that was your football team? That was a win as beautiful as Raquel Welch, brother. See, I, I think you, Zach, like Zach, to that point, and sorry to interrupt because I do want you to expand. To Jake's point, I know it's a little tongue in cheek about the tweets, but the tweets we see from Ursay, the public comments, are only after the positive wins, only after beating Kansas City, only after Denver. Right. It's all that talk before the Tennessee game. Your team, favored for the fourth straight game in the division, gets down for the fourth straight game by three scores in your own building. You lose a critical divisional game, and it's silence from Ursay. So I think that is what is confusing to a lot of people. It's you only hear the owner when things are going well in the win column. Right, and I guess that's that's got to be really frustrating for a fan base that hears a lot from him when it's good, and then when it's very poor, like you mentioned Tennessee, and we can go back to Houston, and obviously the nail in the coffin, Jacksonville. I mean, you don't hear a thing. But look, you know, from what I understand, he's not happy. He's not happy with how the season has started. So we'll see what happens. We'll see, you know, where they go from here. They have. You know, they have struggled with new quarterbacks every year. I think that's important to remember. Matt Ryan is not the first. Carson Wentz was one and four and struggling a little bit last year with those ankle injuries. You know, Phillip Rivers, four touchdowns, five interceptions in his first five games. Frank Reich was getting questions about whether Phillip would remain the starter after that week five loss in Cleveland in 2020. So we've been here before with this team. However, to answer Jake's point, I think this is important because the thing that nobody's talking about are some of these really good moves that Chris Ballard has made. And I'm, I'm going to get to the other things. Trust me. Alec Pierce looks like a great pick. Stephon Gilmore, great signing, right? Robert Stewart, like another one of those guys that just continues to play better year after year. Those are great moves. But none of it matters because, as Jake mentioned, they whiffed on one of the most important positions in the game at left tackle. And maybe Bernard Ryman you know, grows into that role. And I think he will, but it's going to take some time and he's going to have some bad plays. But, the, you know, I wrote this yesterday and I wrote a deep dive on the offense and the, and the numbers were very alarming of where they're at right now and what the problems are. It's very clear. The fact that they thought they could just put Matt Pryor out of position and just fill the left, left tackle spot was an egregious oversight. I mean, we watched this every single day in Westfield and I wrote about it. And I asked Frank Reich about it after the preseason finale. I said, how comfortable are you with Matt Pryor at left tackle? And he said, I'm good with him. He's played really well. No, he hadn't, Frank. He hadn't played well. The Lions came here and embarrassed him, and he struggled with a lot of speed when he saw Ngakwe. It was obvious to everybody watching that Pryor wasn't an answer. That's on Chris Ballard, and that's on Frank Reich. And you can't, have, you can't just coast 
at the left tackle spot. You can't just cover that up. It's not the right guard spot. But get, to get to the other position, Danny Pinter was never going to be the answer at right guard. We saw this in camp. The Lions came in here, and he was the worst lineman of that group. And he lasted three games. And they just tried to force guys into positions that they weren't comfortable in. And it backfired in a huge way because their quarterback's 37, and he's taken a beating that is absolutely unsustainable. And, and right, yeah, to, to, to long answer your question, Jake, um, I don't, I don't know how they thought in a million years that Matt Pryor was just going to magically become a left tackle in three months. Matt Pryor literally laughed at the thought of him playing left tackle. That would have been everything yeah. that I needed to see. I looked to... up his quote, KB. <laughs> yeah. He said, I'd be the last person on earth who thought, you, who thought I'd be playing left tackle. That's what he said. As soon as I heard that, I'm like, well, that tells me everything I need to know about this guy's confidence and making a, a drastic switch, to be fair, and flipping over to left tackle. Zach Kiefer from The Athletic is with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Zach, this is a little bit more big picture related to Frank Reich. Someone pointed this out. And I guess I don't really know what to make of it, but I'll throw it your way. Nick Sirianni and Matt Eberflus have left the coordinating post here in Indianapolis. They have gone to take head coaching jobs, and neither of them call the plays for their respective Mm. offenses or defenses. Do you think at times, with Frank so ingrained into this offense, because he has to be, frankly, any play caller has to be, that maybe the CEO responsibilities or knowing every kind of nook and cranny you need to about your entire roster, your entire position groups, both sides of the ball, you think that gets a little lost in the shuffle form? I certainly think it's a really big challenge. And I thought it was really interesting when one of the best play callers in football last year, Brian Dable, went to the New York Giants and gave up play calling duties. That's essentially why he was hired, to be the offensive mind. And I think you're seeing a little bit more of that. And you see Zach Taylor in Cincinnati getting a little heat for his play calls. And he's supposed to be this wonder kid, you know, coach who led the Bengals to the Super Bowl last year. I, you know, and it's interesting because I don't know a whole lot about Marcus Brady as the offensive coordinator. I knew what Mark Nick Sirianni did, but the offense has obviously taken a huge regression the last two years. And it's not solely because of Marcus Brady or anything like that. But as Chris Ballard mentioned last year, you know, Frank Reich is the offensive coordinator. That was, those were his exact words. And I think all the different CEO-type responsibilities, as you mentioned, they pile up. They pile up, especially for a coach whose seat is warming. And there's no doubt that Frank Reich's seat is warming, especially after these two division losses, right? They were embarrassed in Jacksonville for the umpteenth time, and then they, you know, they came home and they were supposed to write the ship against Tennessee a week after beating Kansas City and they were flat and like you said they were down three scores and they came back and they just didn't have enough so um, I think you know that's a fair question I think Frank's pretty adamant that he's not going to give up play calling duties I don't think we know anything about Marcus Brady's play calling ability he could be great he could be terrible I really don't know um, but if you're going to blame anything on the offense, this is Frank Reich's offense, and, and this is his play calls, and these are his players, and and that's where it starts. Surely, Zach, the Colts can't come out and be flat against Jacksonville again, right? Especially coming off of what Jacksonville just did where they were lifeless in a divisional game. The, the Jags that have owned the Colts of late, that's all an anomaly, right? 
Jake, I don't know what the heck is going to happen on Sunday. I'm not putting anything past this team. I, I, I mean, the game I covered Thursday night in Denver, I mean, we were just laughing about three-quarters of the way through because it was just something I'd never seen on a football field before. And as I wrote that night, like 55 minutes of awful football from the offense is not excused because you had two field goal drives at the end that helped you escape and camouflage all the issues that were at hand. I mean, Quentin Nelson... I walked up to him, and he, 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 I didn't even ask a question. He just said, that was disgusting. And I think he speaks for everybody. Um, like, let's not overlook. I mean, Chase McLaughlin, great night. DeForest Buckner, he was a beast. Alec Pierce, he looks like he's surreal. Don't let those things, and those things were great, camouflage the offensive issues and the fact that this team could barely scrape by a Denver team that is an absolute mess. So do they show up Sunday? I would sure hope so for Frank Reich's sake, because if they don't and if they're flat and if they play like they did in Jacksonville a month ago, they're going to get booed and the owner's going to get even more angry. Zach, it was a really long injury report yesterday. I don't think it's as alarming as it looks on paper. I mean, I, I would classify Quiddy Pay in the Shaquille Leonard category of highly unlikely to play on Sunday. I don't know if I'd throw anyone else into that group just yet. Uh, let's go with Quiddy Pay here for a second with that ankle injury. No, no boot on, no injured reserve yet. So maybe the Colts feel like it's not going to be a month plus thing with him. Uh, with his absence, though, expected at least for a couple of games. Do you think that means more Dio Dangbo or more Taekwon Lewis? Yeah, I'm going to say Dio. I think that's the name I've heard a little bit more. He's flashed more in the last couple of weeks. It's his time. You're a second round pick, dude. Second round picks need to be starter quality players. And Lewis coming back helps as well because he's played all those positions on the defensive line. But I, I think it's time to see what Dio could do. Like, you know, he's flashed in, in a rotational role, but um, the Achilles is a thing of the past. It's time for him to step in. And I thought Cordy Pay was having a pretty good season, but um, those two are always going to be linked. They were back-to-back picks. You know, they need to produce. So I think Dio steps up. And let's see what he can do as a starter. Zach Kiefer, The Athletic, is where you can read his work. What's upcoming in terms of stuff you've got working and covering besides just the game itself against Jacksonville, Zach? I've had a lot of conversations lately with one of the greatest Colts of the 1990s that that doesn't feel like he gets enough love. Any names coming to mind, Jake? Well, the pre-Payton era, I will say. Jake's going to be all over this one. The pre-Payton era. Now, Boy, there's a lot that come to mind. I'll be honest with you. Probably, I will probably one of the top three players of that of that '90s team. Um, Sean Dawkins, Ellis Johnson, Marshall Falk. Those are the ones that come to mind. Kirk Loudermilk, Will Wolford, linebacker, Cornelius Bennett, um, Elijah still, Alexander, still going. Jeff Harrod, or is that more Jeff Harrod. Yeah, Jeff Harrod's a good one. Yeah, it's Jeff Harrod. Yeah. Now, did you did you have to do the interview at Rock Lobster? No, he's in Tampa now, so we caught up. But um, he's a great dude, man. I mean, he's a good guy. It, I think he's had some some challenges. That would be at hard times. with the siren at Rock Lobster. <laughs> Zach to get the audio. <laughs> No, I mean, he shouldn't be laughing, but Jeff, you're right. You're he, right. He's had challenges, but he is at heart. I mean, he yeah. he was a he was a he and Tony Saragusa both were great ambassadors, really, just in terms of connection with the fans. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, we talked about that. We talked about kind of 
you know, the pre-Peyton era and how it's kind of overlooked and, and often disregarded in the city and, and, and a lot of the physical struggles he's dealing with now. He's, he's 56 years old and he feels like he's 96 and there's some scary stuff. So I think it's an important story. One cool. of Rick Venturi's favorites, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he discovered him. Did Harad, let me guess here, was Harad out of, was it Mississippi State? Where was he out of? Auburn. It was an SEC school. That sounds, it's one of those, yeah. And he was. No, it was Ole Miss. I think it was Ole Miss. Because he was not a high, like, I mean, wasn't he like a fifth rounder or a sixth rounder, right? I mean, he was kind of a. I think, Jake, I think he was like a tenth rounder. Yeah. Back then they had like a ton of rounds to the draft, right? He was one that just like kind of hung around. He was a fan favorite for certain man, and he was a very good player. You are right. If he, if if Jeff Harrod, oh, he was a beast in the middle. Yeah, he was. If Jeff Harrod, he is not in the Ring of Honor, right? No, he's not, and he's not real happy about it. And he would be in his defense. If Jeff Harrod played in the Manning era, he would be in the Ring of Honor. Right, right. But the Manning era, it's almost like pre-Manning era. What you know? What were the Colts like? You know, it was that little 95 run. Oh, there were Huddles, Kroger, Johnny Cook's posters, and, uh, you know, Zoop lifting tractors. That's what the Colts were pre Do you remember the yell, scream, go horse? Of course. Uh, advertising campaign? Of course. I mean, that's brilliant right there. Touchdown I mean, monkey? I mean, your ring of honor pre-Manning is what? Like the 12th man, Bob Ursay, Bill, Bill Brooks? Yeah. March of Broda? Yeah. I think it should have been. Bro- I mean, Harbaugh was in there, and he had, like, what, a, a good, one good season? Zach, Maybe. do you want to know? I'll tell you the one Colts-like anecdote that is the most fascinating to me because I still occasionally think to myself, did that really happen? Was when Ron Meyer and Jim Irsay decided that the Colts were going to run the wishbone, and they called Ricky Turner. who was the wishbone. Yeah, and they called Ricky Turner, who had been a wishbone quarterback at Washington State and was driving a cement truck in, like, Spokane. <laughs> on a Wednesday, and on that Sunday, he was running the wishbone with Dickerson and Albert Bentley in San Diego. It was the most unbelievable thing ever. And, like, it was like a 30 for 30 should be done about it. For three (laughs) weeks, they were a wishbone team, and then they went back to being a normal team, and they released him. Totally bizarre. The the stories from those years just just boggle my mind. I mean, I was a kid, and I can remember the Colts won so little that when they did win, Subway would give out free subs to anyone <laughs> after the game. Think about that in the Manning era. You'd have had free Subway right. every week yeah. like for four months because they won so much. Zach, we'll be looking forward to that story. Thank you. Thanks, guys.